Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, Work and Careers Editor, and with me, as usual, is everyone's favourite management columnist, Andrew Hill. Hello. We're talking to the six authors who have made the shortlist for the 2017 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, the world's most coveted prize for business writing. Find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award and find out on November the 6th who wins. This week, Janesville, an American story. The story of an industrial town in Wisconsin. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Amy Goldstein spent years in the town where the US's oldest operating General Motors assembly plant closed after 90 years in 2009. The book is her account of a community struggling to adjust, and she joins us now on the line. Welcome, Amy. Good to be with you both. Your book is an extraordinarily sensitive and moving account of a state of industrial upheaval, firmly in the genre of reportage. Tell us, how did the book come about? Well, as the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 was ending, I was uh, at my day job at the Washington Post covering a broad social policy beat. And I wrote a few stories about what are called recession effects, what the ground level uh, effect is of the economy of the United States being in such terrible shape. So I did a story, for instance, out of Florida about people who are falling out of the middle class and onto welfare rolls. And I did a story out of South Carolina about the strains on the nonprofit parts of the social safety net, places like nonprofit food pantries that were just slammed with lots and lots of new clients. And at the same time that their donations were falling apart because not as many people had uh, extra money to give to charities. And these kind of stories made me very interested in finding a way to write about what was really happening in a community when a lot of jobs went away. I was paying attention at that time to what kind of writing other journalists were doing about the bad U.S. economy. And what struck me was that there was an awful lot of good coverage of the government's economic policies and whether they were right or wrong and the political fighting about all of that. There was a lot of coverage about the banking industry and the auto industry. But there wasn't a lot of writing back then about what the loss of jobs did to ordinary people. And I became pretty fixated on finding a way to tell that story. I was so obsessed with this that I did something I've never done in my long career, which is I took a leave from my job to identify a community that I thought would be a good place to tell the story. So you went to Janesville. Just tell us a little bit, for those who haven't read the book, about why Janesville seemed to you at that stage to be the right place to search for this story. You know, if you think about it, if you're going to tell a story that's a microcosm or a metaphor, you better choose carefully. 
And I thought a lot about what criteria I should use to pick a place to write about. And one of the things that I had in mind, beyond the fact that I needed a place that had lost a lot of jobs, um, was that I wanted to focus on a place that had never before been part of the Industrial Rust Belt of the Midwest um, in this country. Because I didn't want to be writing about an accumulation of economic decay. I wanted to be writing about what this bad economic time had done. And that was very much true of Janesville. This General Motors plant had started making tractors in 1919, just after World War I. And in 1923, it began making Chevys. And if you think about how many generations of workers that was, I mean, this was a place that had had these jobs for most of a century. And while products had come and gone from the plant over those decades, the town had always been in pretty good economic shape. And not only there was this plant that, at its heyday in the late 1970s, had about 7,000 workers, and by the late 2000s, when I um, was beginning to focus on it, still had between three and 4,000 workers. This plant had also spawned a lot of local companies in this part of southeastern Wisconsin that supplied goods and services to the plant. So there were all, a lot of other factories that had jobs because this plant existed. So when the plant closed, all these other jobs disappeared too. And all those good working-class jobs disappearing meant that other little businesses in town had trouble keeping afloat. So there's this real cascade. So that was um, one big important reason why I chose Janesville. I also had the sense that this small city, about 63,000, 64,000 um, residents, had really been part of the United States industrial history in some interesting ways. Um, in the late 1930s, there was a pretty famous General Motors sit-down strike that cemented the United Auto Workers as the labor representative for General Motors um, employees. And Janesville was one of the sites where that strike happened. In World War II, it stopped producing vehicles and started making artillery shells. So it was part of the World War II home front. It was also in, the home, wasn't it, of Parker Penn? That's right, which was founded by a young man at the time in the late 1800s who was a telegraphy instructor at a telegraphy school and uh, was fixing leaky fountain pens and decided that he was going to invent a better one, and that became the Parker Penn Company which had its own proud U.S. industrial history and had markets internationally long before globalization became a prevalent uh, way that businesses were operating. So this was a small city that really had an outsized sense of itself and an outside reach into the world. It also was an interesting place politically. Before I learned much at all about Janesville, I knew that it was an old, democratic-leaning, united auto workers town that was represented in Congress by Paul Ryan, who at the time had not yet become vice presidential candidate, as he did in 2012, or even a House committee chairman, let alone what he is now, which is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. But I just thought there might be something interesting about a Democratic Union town represented by this very conservative, ambitious congressman in a state that is governed now by a man named Scott Walker, who is a quite well-known conservative. So I just thought there might be some interesting political tension to find. So these were some of the reasons why I picked Janesville. Seems like you picked well. And one of the things I just wanted to ask was, it struck me very much that the tone of the book is very balanced. I mean, obviously, you're a award-winning reporter. It's very much sees all sides. I get the impression 
clearly you were in deep with some of the families who were, whose family members were laid off, and so there's a sympathy there. But there's also a sort of fellow feeling for even the wealthier citizens of, you call them the two Janesvilles at one point uh, later in the, in the tale, as they struggle with the consequences for the community. And I'm wondering whether how hard it was to hold that balance, particularly as the story evolved and it got more and more difficult for some of the families of the laid-off workers. You know, I appreciate your pointing out that the book feels even-handed because that was very much part of my goal. I had the notion that I wanted to tell this story as kind of a kaleidoscope in which I would be showing the perspective of people from different points of view in town about how they thought they should respond when all these jobs went away. So as you say, there are three main auto worker families whose experiences and whose decisions run through what's basically a five-year chronology that the story tells from 2008, mainly through 2013, though it moves forward a little bit at the end. But I also wanted to show what kinds of decisions were being made by the main banker in town who became very involved in a big economic development effort to try to attract new jobs to the community and prevent businesses that were there from fleeing. I was interested in the perspective of people in the school system who were seeing kids whose families weren't doing as well as they had before. I was interested in the perspective of the man who ran the local job center, which was ground zero for where laid-off workers came when uh, they lost their jobs and weren't quite sure what to do. So I wanted to show not just how this big dislocation of work, and there were a lot of jobs that went away between 2008 and 2009. According to federal figures, about 9,000 jobs disappeared from the county in which Janesville is the county seat. So that's a lot of jobs. So as I say, I wanted not just to show what this experience was like for the workers who suddenly no longer had the jobs that they thought would last forever, but also what it was like for other people in the community, You know, some of whom were personally affected and some of whom weren't, some of whom were trying to figure out how to make things better for their fellow residents, and some of whom, you know, as you uh, allude to in talking about the phrase, two Janesvilles that I came up with, some of whom were pretty oblivious to the kinds of pain that was sinking in among some of their neighbours. The device that you use, the story unfolds it, almost in a cinematic way through a series of stories that are from the very sort of intimate perspectives of the individuals. There's a cast of characters and you introduce them to us at the beginning. How did you choose your cast? In terms of the worker families, I should probably admit that I didn't choose quickly or efficiently. I got to know a lot of people in town. And I felt as if I really needed to understand, as I came to think of it, what choices people were making when there were no good choices left in order to figure out who would be really good representatives of those different kinds of choices that different people made. Uh, So I got to know many more people than the families whose stories I focus on close up. And there were obviously many, many people who could have been the heart of the story. And when I was thinking about which families I wanted to focus on, I also was trying to find people who I thought that my potential readers eventually could identify with. So in other words, there were people who recovered better than these people. There were many people who did less well than these people. I mean, there were a lot of people who lost their houses, I mean, whose lives really fell apart. And I thought that these families, in addition to having made different kinds of choices from one another about what to do, 
We're basically all people that most people could identify with as trying hard and not having obvious decisions to make and feeling pain and having, you know, good family values. I mean, there were a lot of uh, divorces in town. I didn't focus on families that split up, um, but people who stayed together and were struggling. So those are some of the ideas I had about um, who might be good main characters. And I always feel funny saying characters because these are real people who I know and other people in town know who still are going through this experience. And how did you get them to open up to you in the way that you do? I mean, they're very intimate portraits. Well, I got to know people a little bit at a time. So, for instance, um, one of the families is the Vaughn family. They were a big union family in town. They were one of two families in Janesville that had had three generations of men on the United Auto Workers Local 95 Executive Committee. So these were big union folks. And I first met Dave Vaughn, who was in his early 60s at the time. I first got to town in 2011, so it was a couple of years after a lot of this work had vanished. And he was a GM retiree at that point, but he and another retiree were back running the union local because there were no more active workers to get release time from their jobs, as had used to been the case, to run the local. So there were those retirees who were running it. And I got to know him, and as I did with many, many people who I met at first, I said, who else should I get to know? And Dave said, you know, you should meet my son, but he may not want to talk to you because he's pretty private. So eventually I did meet his son, Mike, who was in his late 30s when he lost his job. He hadn't worked for General Motors, but he had worked for the biggest supplier to the assembly plant, a big seat-making plant called Lear Seating that had about 800 workers itself. And uh, Mike Vaughn was the shop chairman, the top union guy uh, for this big seat-making plant um, that closed at the exact same time that the General Motors assembly plant closed. And Mike and I talked a little bit, and, you know, he was fairly reticent at first. And, you know, he always, like many of the people I talked to, was, you know, a little bit reserved about what they wanted me to know, what they didn't want me to know. And we just got to know each other gradually over time. And eventually I met his wife, Barb. I didn't meet her at first because she was back in school retraining and also had a part-time job. And she was just incredibly busy. But when she finished her schooling, I eventually met her and we got to know each other. So it was really a very gradual, iterative process of winning people's trust. The story that you tell unfolds almost all of it in the Obama years, and you touch very briefly in the epilogue on what this story does or does not explain about the success of Donald Trump in last year's elections. I wonder if you could just briefly expand on what the experience of embedding yourself so deeply in this community told you, both in advance of the Trump victory and afterwards about what is commonly held to be the explanation for for his success? Well, his success is often thought to be, at least in part, attributable to anger and disaffection within the American white working class. Right. And Janesville is a fairly white working class small city. It's also still a democratic city. The morning after the election last November, you know, I woke up and raced to my computer to see how Janesville had voted because Wisconsin, as a state, had for the first time in many, many years gone Republican and was one of the swing states that contributed to now President Trump's victory. And it was interesting because I knew that Janesville had voted in 2012 for President Obama's second term 
by 62%. I had been in Janesville that election night. And when I looked at my computer the morning after last November's election, I saw that the city, the county, had voted for Hillary Clinton by 52%. So it was a big decrease, but it had stayed Democratic. And if you look at the numbers, what turned out to be the case was that it's not that there were a lot of people who switched party in last year's election, but there were many fewer uh, Democrats who turned out. So that principally accounted for the decrease in the Democratic percentage. So it's not as if Janesville itself was a place that supported Trump. But what I do think is true is that the kinds of economic experiences, very, very personal and painful ones that many people in Janesville went through, are the same kind of experiences that in less democratic-leaning communities where the political identity isn't so firm and rooted and old, those kinds of experiences, I think, motivated other working-class Americans to vote for Trump. And do you think that there is a, a lesson here for policymakers? Obviously, as you say, Paul Ryan is now a very big wheel in the Republican Party and, and a key figure in the, in the Trump presidential tenure. But are there lessons here for how politicians and policymakers should behave towards communities? I thought, as I read the book... There are going to be more of this type of decision being taken by big companies when it comes to automation, uh, even if it's not actual closure of plants. They're, these are the kind of decisions that companies are going to have to take more and more in the future. So I agree with you about the sort of generalizability of the experience of this one community. And that's why I did its work, because I thought that people in many communities where there's various kinds of work, have gone through similar experiences and are likely to go through these kinds of hard experiences in the future. As for the lessons for policymakers, I think that there are a few big picture things that I came away with having gotten to know many people in Janesville. One is that I think that falling out of the middle class, which is what happened to not all but many of these people, at least for some time, Falling out of the middle class is not the same as having been poor all along. There's a real sense of shame and pride and wanting to hide what's going on uh, financially in your home when you've been a middle class person and suddenly you're not anymore. And that, at least you know, based on the people I got to know, really inhibited people's comfort in asking for help outside their own families. So there are food stamp programs in Wisconsin, as there are in all states, and people didn't want to ask for that help. I mean, people did not want to go to nonprofits, and that's not for that we're dispensing various kinds of help. That's not to say that nobody did, but there was a real discomfort with that. You know, I remember talking to the people who were running one nonprofit in town, a little charity called Community Action that's part of a network of similar organizations that came out of the Great Society of the 1960s, so it had been around for a long time. And I remember asking the people who were running um, Janesville's Community Action Office what was different about these people who they were seeing now having lost work. And they said, you know, the people who have been poor all along, they knew how to help because those folks would come in and the staff of this nonprofit could steer them towards federal programs to Badger Care, which is the name for Medicaid, in Wisconsin, public health insurance for poor people. And these people who are losing their jobs now, if they called community action, which many of them didn't even do, they didn't want that kind of help. What they wanted help with was finding a job, and that was a lot harder help to provide. So I think that that is one important lesson, that you have to pay attention to what the kind of values and self-perceptions are of people who have been middle-class people who suddenly 
find that their good work has gone away. A second lesson that I think the experience of Janesville should make people think about is the United States' fondness for job retraining programs. If you think about what Republicans and Democrats think should be the economic policies when unemployment rises, there's very little intersection of the two parties' lists, but both parties agree that job retraining is a good thing to do. And there's a lot of federal money that goes into a couple of different federal job retraining programs, provides money all over the country, including to places like Janesville that got a lot of federal money to help GM workers and the people from the supplier companies such as Lear Seeding go back to school and pay for their tuition, pay for their textbooks, a lot of federal money flowing through. And it's not to say that job retraining is never useful, but in the context of Janesville, it turned out that going back to school, at least in the few years after these jobs went away, did not, on balance, turn out to be a very helpful thing for people to do. There's a small technical college in town called Blackhawk Technical College, public school, that really knocked itself out trying to help all these dislocated workers who were arriving in hordes, having lost their jobs, having you know really been pretty traumatized by this experience, not having been in school, you know, many of them for half of their lifetimes if they were in their 30s or 40s. So this college tried really, really hard. But a few years after these jobs went away, by 2011, based on some data that I analyzed with help of a couple of good labor economists as part of the research for my book, there really was not much sign that this training was helpful. People were not getting jobs any more readily than people who had not gone back to school the gap between their pay before the big recession and afterwards, in fact, was greater if they had gone back to school than if they had not. So there were just a lot of signs that this, you know, very popular, quote, solution for people who've lost jobs, you know, at least in the context of a community that didn't have a lot of new jobs coming in around then, was not very helpful. Yeah, that's a very disheartening bit of the book, actually, because you really feel that the Blackhawk College is doing its best to try and get these people new jobs and that, to find that many of them fail to find them or f only found jobs that they then didn't enjoy or didn't appreciate. Or is, didn't pay it, very much. Or didn't pay enough or, or change their status, actually, in some cases in quite tragic ways. That really, you feel a sort of hope go away there about halfway through when it becomes clear that it's not all paying off. Amy, the book is very much a piece of reportage in the tradition of Orwell and perhaps Martha Gellhorn. Why did you opt for that genre, and did you have those writers in mind? Well, I am a journalist. I've worked at the Washington Post as of this fall for 30 years and two other newspapers before that, so reporting is what I do. And I wanted this to be a story that, in the reading experience, I hoped felt somewhat novelistic, that it felt like a story, that it had some drama and emotion to it, which I think were very much present in this community but were completely rooted in the experiences that really happened to real people. I made sure that everybody who agreed to be in the book was willing to have their real name used. I, mean, I wanted to show that this was really happening to people in this country. I know that you, you're reluctant to pick out other shortlisted books from the Business Book of the Year Award without necessarily having read them, which is understandable, but are there any of the books out of your five fellow finalists that you're particularly looking forward to reading? Well, I have looked through them all, and it's just I don't want to, uh, you know, pick favorites among a set of terrific fellow writers who've produced some really, really good books. 
I will tell you that I did a sort of joint interview last week with Walter Scheidel, whose book is The Great Leveling. Yes, we talked to him last week, yes. And it was a really interesting conversation because both he and I are writing about income inequality, but our books couldn't be more different because mine is, as we've been talking about, you know, a microcosm. And he is pulling together all kinds of data across world history and prehistory to find the patterns that, that he describes and the relationship that he draws between periods of significant violence and compressing of inequality. So we had a very interesting conversation about sort of the way we approach similar ideas with you know, diametrically opposite methodologies. Right. That's it from us this week. Join us in a week's time when we will be talking to another of our shortlisted authors. Check out the full list at ft.com forward slash book award. You can contact us on Twitter at ftworkcareers using the hashtag ftbizbooks. My thanks to Amy Goldstein, to Andrew Hill and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. Until next time, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.